I invite you now to turn and find in your Bibles a scripture passage we will consider this morning as we return to the book of Isaiah. And we find ourselves here in chapter 22 as we have been making our way through this majestic book by the prophet Isaiah, written some 700 years before the arrival of Jesus of Nazareth, our Lord and our Savior. And you can find the scripture passage this morning on page 1090 of our Pew Bibles. And we'll read this entire chapter from verse 1 to 25. Hear now the reading of God's word. An oracle concerning the valley of vision. What troubles you now that you have all gone up on the roofs, O town full of commotion, O city of tumult and revelry? Your slain were not killed by the sword, nor did they die in battle. All your leaders have fled together. They have been captured without using the bow. All you who were caught were taken prisoner together, having fled while the enemy was still far away. Therefore I said, turn away from me. Let me weep bitterly. Do not try to console me over the destruction of my people. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, has a day of tumult and trampling and terror in a valley of vision a day of battering down walls and of crying out to the mountains. Elam takes up the quiver with her charioteers and horses. Kir uncovers a shield. Your choicest valleys are full of chariots and horsemen are posted at the city gates. The defenses of Judah are stripped away. And you looked in that day to the weapons in the palace of the fortress. You saw that the city of David had many breaches in its defenses. You stored up water in the lower pool. You counted the buildings in Jerusalem and tore down houses to strengthen the wall. You built a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the the old pool. But you did not look to the one who made it or have regard for the one who planned it long ago. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, called you on that day to weep and to wail, to tear out your hair and put on sackcloth. But see... There is joy and revelry, slaughtering of cattle and killing of sheep, eating of meat and drinking of wine. Let us eat and drink and say, you say, for tomorrow we die. The Lord Almighty has revealed this in my hearing. Till your dying day, this sin will not be atoned for, says the Lord, the Lord Almighty. This is what the Lord, the Lord Almighty says. Go say to this steward, to Shebna, who is in charge of the palace, What are you doing here? And who gave you permission to cut out a grave for yourself here, hewing your grave on the height and chiseling your resting place in the rock? Beware. The Lord is about to take firm hold of you and hurl you away, O you mighty man. He will roll up you tightly like a ball and throw you into a large country. There you will die, and there your splendid chariots will remain. You disgrace to your master's house. I will dispose you from office, and you will be ousted from your position. In that day I will summon my servant, Eliakim, son of Hilkai. 
I will clothe him with your robe and fasten your sash around him and hand your authority over to him. He will be a father to those who live in Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I will drive him like a peg into a firm place. He will be a seat of honor for the house of his father. All the glory of his family will hang on him, its offspring and offshoots, all its lesser vessels, from the bowls to all the jars. In that day, declares the Lord Almighty, the peg driven into the firm place will give way. It will be sheared off, will fall, and the load hanging on it will be cut down. The Lord has spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May he add his blessing to it as we consider it now. Beloved ones, uh, we always need to hear God's word naturally. But sometimes we need to hear God's word not only to us personally, but also to Christians everywhere. We need to hear God's message not just to our own particular church, but also to the universal church with a capital C the Church of Christ, where it exists truthfully in every place, everywhere. And why? Why do we need to hear that kind of general message? Well, it helps us see the dangers and pitfalls where others have fallen. And that helps us. It keeps us from falling in the same way. And in fact, that's what we find here in this text. It is a social critique of God's ancient church, the people of Judah, and also an indictment against the specific city of Jerusalem. But as we consider this critique and its indictments, we should ask ourselves, how does this apply to the Christian church today broadly? How does this apply to the church today? But then also narrowly, we should be evaluating our own selves and our own church and ask, how does this apply to our own congregation? Three points as we make our way through this passage. First, the irony, then the impasse, and lastly, the installation. So first notice the irony here. He starts off with this oracle that he says in verse 1 of chapter 22, concerning the valley of vision. This is ironic, because valleys are not places of vision. What is a place of vision? The place of vision is a mountaintop where you can see in every direction, not a valley where you're closed in with walls on either side. You can't see much ahead of you or behind you, especially if it's a windy valley. And so calling Jerusalem a valley of vision is like calling a tyrannical nation a dungeon of freedom. Dungeons and freedom... They don't go together, just like valleys and visions don't go together. This is an ironic indictment here against the city of Jerusalem. And what is further ironic here, furthermore, is that Jerusalem, we know, is called to be that city on a hill, the place of clearest vision of all things. Why? Because they had the word of God. And that's what we saw earlier when we read God's law from Deuteronomy chapter 4. God gave his people the Old Testament, the Torah, with an evangelistic purpose to draw in the nations by the light of God's righteous word. 
As Deuteronomy 4, 6 says, Observe God's commands carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations, who will hear about those decrees and say, Surely this great nation is wise and an understanding people. So they had the scriptures, God's own word, to see and walk in the light in the midst of a dark world, but instead they ignored the light and got lost in the darkness around them. They become sort of like a ship lost at sea, their faith slowly dislodged from the lock, from the dock rather, and slowly drifted out little by little into the oceans, the chaotic winds and waves of the world. And they came to this conclusion that we find in this passage that they didn't really need God or his word. They were fine living life the way they wanted to, and so they silenced their conscience and partied like the world around them without a care for the holiness of God. And what was the result? They were no longer distinct from their neighbors. They were not different. They were not holy. They ignored God's word for so long that they became just like the pagan nations around them. You know, in Proverbs chapter 29, verse 18, it says this, where there is no vision, you can say revelation, the people run wild, but blessed is he who keeps the law. So in other words, when a people try and run their lives without the revealing truth of God's word, what happens? They end up running wild and falling apart. And that's what happened with God's people in Isaiah's day. They didn't have any longer that panoramic mountaintop view of the truth. Instead, they had a dark and narrow approach to life. They had become a valley of poor vision. They looked more like the people around the world than they did like the God of the word that they had received. Or to use Jesus' own illustration in the New Testament, Isaiah is basically saying here, the people of Jerusalem, you've lost your saltiness and you're about to be thrown out and trampled upon. Now look at verses 1 to 2 in our text. There Isaiah describes how the people of Jerusalem were so out of touch with the true God that they were out partying and celebrating on the rooftops in their own self-reliance, in their own self-seeking, when in fact they should have been sad and sorrowful, repenting in dust and ash. And then the second half of verse 2, Isaiah shows us why. Because something was coming. He, go, he gives us a stark contrast to their vain, empty partying. We see in verses 2 to 3 that he foresees here the fall of Jerusalem to Babylon in the year 586 B.C. He describes how their leaders, like cowards, would run away, leaving their people to die without a fight. And as Isaiah saw this, he was grieved. Look at verse 4. He speaks to his fellow Israelites and says, Turn away from me. Leave me alone, basically. Let me weep. Let me cry. Don't try and comfort me. Why didn't Isaiah want their sympathy and their consolation, their comfort? Why? He knew it was fake. He knew their hearts. He knew they wanted to say to him, Ah, there, there, Isaiah. It's all going to be fine. Don't guilt trip yourself. Just cheer up. Come party with us. But Isaiah couldn't. He couldn't get himself to party. 
and celebrate. Why? Because he saw that coming destruction and he couldn't ignore it. Isaiah couldn't act like everything was fine when in fact it was not fine. He didn't want their fake sympathy and consolation. He wanted their repentance and faith. He wanted to give them that same vision that they would see the reality of this dark vision of their future and so that they would change their ways and repent. He wanted them to respond in faith and with fear of the Lord. But again and again, and here in this place, they were blind and deaf to his message. At the end of verse 4, Isaiah describes his grief like that of a father who's lost his beloved daughter. In the, Greek, or in the Hebrew there, it speaks of Jerusalem as a beloved daughter lost to the world. And in tragic irony here, Jerusalem was meant to be that city on a hill, giving light and truth and hope to the watching world. But instead, it's become a dark valley. Now, after we've seen this description, this irony, what does that sound like today? Sadly, I think it sounds a lot like many churches in the Western world, in America. Churches in the United States, many of them have become just like the world in its media and its message. Many churches mirror the beliefs and the style of the godless culture around us more than they reflect the character and truth of God's word. And in many churches, the leaders, the preachers, give watered-down messages, a feel-good version of Christianity that is no longer truly Christian. Many, many capitulate to the ways and the thinking of the world more than they abide by the ways and teachings of Jesus. I don't think I have to even show you any evidences. We know this to be the case. Many churches in the West have likewise become dark valleys of vain vision that offer really nothing different than what the world offers. What can we do about that? Well, we can't try and fix those churches, but by faith we can try and work on ourselves. And what Paul says in the opening of Romans chapter 12 is fitting to us, fitting to any church and all Christians. He says this, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. This means, loved ones, that we in all of our life, but especially the most important parts, must be guided by the word of God, not the ways of the world. So what are the most important parts of our life? Things like this. Your identity, your values, your desires, your relationships, your job, your marriage, your sexuality, your disposition toward the government, your possessions and your freedoms, your celebrations, and your funerals, your homes and your dreams, your rising and your lying down, your living and your dying. In such important things, God's word must be our first and final guide and authority. 
Now, it's true that we can and should learn a lot of things from the world. We think of Moses, who was in Egypt in Pharaoh's own house and learned so much there, and that shaped him. But also Daniel, too, who learned and a lot while he was in Babylon and studied with them. So the world does give us some insight into the world that God has created. But we must realize that the world gives us absolutely no vision of hope beyond the grave. The human sciences are not able, not capable of telling us the meaning of life. God's word alone says that. Good science can only help us better understand what is before us, what is tangible, what we can see, but it can't give us answers as to why it is. Why did all things come into existence in the beginning? Why? Why are we here? What is the meaning of life? And why should we go on living? The world is and always will be in the dark on those questions. It cannot give us answers to those questions. So do not walk in that darkness. Rather, walk in the light as God is in the light. Walk according to his word, loved ones. Now Isaiah here, he shows us the people of Jerusalem partying basically with their fingers in their ears, refusing to hear the truth. Why? Because they didn't want to change their ways. They liked the way they were living, and so they stayed in it refusing to hear the truth. They were called to be the light of the world, but they had been, become darkened in their minds and their thinking. They were a dark valley of vain vision. And so that's the tragic irony, which leads us to the impasse, the impasse of unbelief. An impasse, that word, it means a situation in which no progress is possible especially when there is a disagreement. It's from the French word for an impassable road or a blind alley. So where do we see that impasse in this passage? Well, in verses 5 to 14, we find that God's word seemed to have no positive effect on the people. It fell on deaf ears. They wouldn't listen. They wouldn't obey. And this becomes especially clear in verses 11 to 14 after he describes in great detail all the energy that they spent uh, to make themselves ready in militaristic terms, preparing themselves for battle. Isaiah says in the second part of verse 11, But you did not look to the one who made it, or have regard for the one who planned it long ago. And commentators here on this passage, they agree that Isaiah is describing their central sin here, their fatal flaw. What is it? Self-reliance, self-reliance, or unbelief, we could say. Alec Moiter, commentator, says it this way, Isaiah saw the solution to the danger that was coming in spiritual terms. What's the solution? Lamentation and penitence, or repentance. But so delighted were they in their do-it-yourself security that a public holiday was declared. But to ignore the Lord, refuse the way of repentance and faith, and embark on the road of self-salvation constitutes the unforgivable sin. So the Lord God Almighty called them to weep and wail, we see, to feel sorry for their sins, to seek his help, but instead they did the opposite. They threw a party. And the motto of their party and celebration of all of their achievements was, let us eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. 
Here is the great impasse, that blind alley that they find themselves in. God told them to look to him by faith, but they basically said, why look to the Lord when we can look to ourselves? And in verse 14, we hear that no progress was possible with that generation. Isaiah says, the Lord Almighty has revealed this in my hearing. Till your dying day, this sin will not be atoned for. They were committing the unforgivable sin. And what is that? It is the conscious rejection of God and his gospel of mercy. The conscious rejection of God and his mercy that he offers freely. After seeing it with clarity, they still rejected it. They were stiff-arming God and his word. Why? In order to live the way they wanted to. They chose a salvation by their own works instead of salvation by faith in God. And here's that tragic impasse. They lost faith in the God who had revealed himself to Israel and had promised to be with them and protect them. And perhaps some of us here today are in that same very place, sitting on that fence between faith and commitment to God, faith with hope beyond the grave, and self-reliance on the other hand, with no purpose but to pursue your own pleasures in life, just tottering on the fence. Maybe that's where you are. Don't close your ears to God's message for you this morning. Don't plug your ears. Look to him. He has promised to be your God and to forgive you all your sins and deliver you from all evil in the end if you would just look to him by faith. Don't wander down this same blind alley of unbelief. It is a dead end with no hope, no light at the end of the tunnel, no hope beyond the grave. And so we've seen that tragic irony. We've also seen this impasse of unbelief. And now at last, we'll see the installation of hope here in verses 15 to 25. Isaiah kind of shifts, and he gets specific. He gets personal. He turns to address two officials that existed in Jerusalem and elsewhere in Isaiah chapter 36. They come up again in a historical narrative. But here, he first calls out this steward Shebna, who was basically a worthless man. But then he speaks of Eliakim, who was more worthy as a man, but ultimately inadequate. But first, Isaiah calls out Shebna for his self-reliance and his proud attitude. He thought he was a big man, a mighty man, strong, powerful, successful in the eyes of the world. But Isaiah declares here that God was going to kick Shebna out of office and swing him around and thrust him out into a country like he was just a pebble. He was going to die in disgrace. It's fascinating that back in 1870, the year 1870, archaeologists found a slab stone in Jerusalem that was intended for a tomb cut out of stone, and it was called the Royal Steward Inscription. And on that inscription, it's believed that it was referring to, it was made for this particular person, Shebna, uh, with this elaborate stone-cut tomb there in Jerusalem. And so there's historical evidence that this man existed. Not only that, Isaiah's point here is that even this fancy burial that he tried to set up for himself to perpetuate his glory for future generations, to show off his success, well, God says it's not going to happen. 
that Shebna's pompous self-importance and self-reliance was going to be forgotten and fall into the cracks of human history, never to be remembered again, except for the disgrace of his unbelief and self-reliance and self-seeking. In fact, Shebna here is a specific example, a clear case and point of what was happening in Jerusalem. Their self-reliance, their impasse of unbelief is displayed in the person of Shebna, this official. This royal steward embodied the self-reliance of Jerusalem in that day. So, in verses 20 to 25, we find that God promises to kick him out and instead promote Eliakim to serve in Shebna's place. And first, God speaks well of Eliakim, calling him his servant and saying what his intentions were for him. God was going to give him much honor and authority, including, notice, the key to the house of David. In other words, he was going to give Eliakim the authority to make binding decisions in the interest of the king in God's kingdom there. And he says that he was going to be firmly placed like a center pig in the middle of a tent. And so imagine that in the kind of the nomadic lifestyle. You have this large tent and there in the middle this large pole or peg that's upholding and lifting up the whole tent for a whole family to come and gather in and take refuge and shelter in. So God's saying that that's who Eliakim could have been in a sense. That people would look to him for fatherly care and protection. Shebna represented that self-reliance of unbelief in Jerusalem, and Eliakim here represents the possibility of faithful leadership that God would install. So after disposing, deposing Shebna, God was going to install Eliakim in office. If he would just rise to the occasion and be a good leader with faithfulness, well, Israel's glory also could stand firm be hanging upon Eliakim and his faithfulness. But when we come to the very last verse, it's a bit dismal, we find that even Eliakim would fail. He too was not fully capable of upholding the weight of Jerusalem. That center peg under the pressure would give and the whole tent would come collapsing down. All of Israel, in a sense, would fall with him. So with that said, that kind of sad note, we should notice that Eliakim's name itself is a sign of hope, for his name means God will establish. In other words, despite the failures of his people, despite the failures of Shebna and then later Eliakim, God would eventually establish his people in righteousness and truth. And we know this to be the case in the gospel, that in the fullness of time, God sent his son whom he installed as his true servant to establish enduring hope beyond death itself. So God sent his son, born of a woman, to be that king that we need, Jesus Christ. And he came to firmly establish God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. When we examine Jesus' life, we see that he lived not by self-reliance, not in self-seeking, but always trusting his Father, always faithful, always true, self-giving to the very last moment, not self-seeking. And as we saw last week, if you're here with us last week when we looked at Matthew 16 there, 
Well, Jesus promised that he will give. Well, first he says that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. So Jesus was promising to establish us in perfect righteousness and obedience based on his finished work for us. He is the firm foundation. God has forgiven and established his people through the self-sacrifice of his only begotten son, Jesus. And then, in that same passage in Matthew 16, the very next verse, what does Jesus say to Peter and to his disciples? I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, by mentioning the keys of the kingdom there, Jesus was clearly making a reference to this very passage in Isaiah 22. That means that now the church, which is built upon the rock of Christ's finished work, his blood that was shed and his perfect righteousness, the church is now that steward or servant of the Lord in the world. It is now our collective responsibility to faithfully represent King Jesus and his kingdom in and through the life of the church and its ministry. We are to live by faith in his word, not by self-reliance. And so, loved ones, let us look not to ourselves, but instead to God. Let us not conform to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Let us be a church committed to God's word. Let us put our light on a stand for others to see. As Jesus said, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. May God make that true of us and establish us upon that firm foundation, which is Christ himself. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, the challenge, and the comfort that it brings. And we admit again this morning, Lord, that we are so tempted to self-reliance and unbelief. And perhaps this comes out most of all as we go through our days and we do not pray. We do not live before you consciously. And so, Lord, we do ask that you would establish us firmly upon Jesus who alone has conquered death to give us hope beyond the grave. Let us stand on him and help us as a church, as a community, of faithful here in this place become a city on a hill in our community. Lord, we don't want to be a valley of vision with a dark and vain message. No, instead make us a bright beacon of hope and truth to those who are around us, like a lighthouse on a hill. Fill us, O Lord, with your spirit and teach us to walk by faith in you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Loved ones, let us now respond uh, with a song of application. We'll sing 369, Worship Christ the Risen King. 369.